We're going to be reading Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17 as our scripture passage this morning as we work our way rapidly through the gospel of Mark. That's the kind of rapid that is sort of an eschatological rapid. Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 13, and try to envision the context of what's going on in the Gospel of Mark and Mark's narrative at this point. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, grant us much of your Holy Spirit now as we consider these words of Jesus. Help us to gain out of this passage and this text those things that will help us understand what Jesus meant and then that we ourselves might be faithful to what Jesus meant, and that our lives as believers would, above all, place Christ above everything else in our lives. This we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to recognize that here we have another confrontation in terms of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, going back earlier in chapter 12, uh, we have that confrontation that came about because of a delegation from the Sanhedrin. They sent people to Jesus, and they were essentially trying to ask Christ, by what authority are you doing all of this that you do? Just the day before, he had cleansed the temple. And then he was teaching in the temple. And in response to that, remember that Jesus raised the issue about John the Baptist. Well, who sent John the Baptist? And uh, they couldn't answer. They could answer, but they didn't want to answer. Because if they said, we, you know, from, from men, the people would have stoned them because they thought John the Baptist came from God. But if they said, from God, then Jesus would have said, then why didn't you follow him? So, as early as Mark chapter 3, in Mark's account here, we have another group that's pictured in the narrative. In fact, they are the, they are the ones who are most against Jesus. These would be the Pharisees and the Herodians. They're working together to destroy Jesus. Now, what you need to know is that's a very strange composition in terms of the New Testament world in Israel. Uh, it's a strange alliance because these two groups within the religious and political situation of the Jews at that time had very opposite and very opposing agendas. 
So putting them together would be no different than if you had a bunch of right-wing conservatives and a bunch of left-wing progressives actually coming together uh, on a joint venture. Uh, it's hard to imagine what would be a common enemy to the, 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 strong, the strongest conservatives on the right, the strongest liberals on the left. But that's what you've got a picture here going on in the passage. You've got the strongest religious group in Israel versus the strongest secular group in Israel coming together, a common enemy. That enemy is Jesus. They have a desire to destroy him. Now, that illustrates a very important point that Jesus was increasingly presenting to his disciples toward the end of his ministry life. And so the very night before he was betrayed, in John chapter 15, he reminds them, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. There are many philosophies and religions and ideologies of all different types in the world. But no matter how much those different ideologies and religions and, 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 and philosophies may disagree with each other, we know today that they are all united on one common front, and that's their opposition to the Christian faith and their opposition to Christ. That means we're going to find all sorts of viewpoints, ideas put forth with antagonism against the Christian faith, against our beliefs and practices as Christians. So we're going to find that Paul's words to Timothy ring true, increasingly in our own culture, because we clearly live in a post-Christian culture. Increasingly, we're going to find, if in our culture, what Paul said to Timothy to be true, that all of those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, the kind of pressures that are going to exist within our own culture on the Christian faith are increasingly mounting. All sorts of temptations, therefore, will come that will pressure us to cave in to compromise, to follow the ways of this world rather than following Jesus faithfully. And so we have this story. What Jesus teaches in the story is pivotal. It's, it's applicable to us today. It's applicable to how we live in this world. The chief lesson out of this passage can be framed more or less this way. That in living Christianity... In living out our citizenship in this world, in all of the choices we make, all the decisions we have to make, all of the paths we have to follow and pursue, whatever they might be, we must always give to Jesus Christ our first and most faithful allegiance. In other words, we must always be ultimately rendering unto Christ. Now, the story itself that we just read has two main parts. Um, what we might call the trap and the escape. Uh, there is a third part as well, which looks at the implications of what Jesus says, which really is found in the rest of Mark's gospel. I want us then to look at it from this standpoint. What was the trap? How did Jesus really respond to the trap? And then how this was actually worked out in the life of Christ in terms of the ultimate meaning of the gospel. Now, the trap. Uh, we see the trap given to us in verses 13 and 14. Mark describes it as a trap. Uh, Mark is careful to tell his readers both about the trap's bait and then about the very nature of the trap itself. Well, what was the bait? Well, the bait was the fact that the trap was laid with the attempted flattery 
of the Pharisees and the Herodians with respect to Jesus. Now, that's a very common kind of manipulation when people get into debates and so forth. Uh, very common for them to uh, bait an opponent by a f- kind of flattery of the opponent. Now, what do we know about flattery? Flattery is almost always a, a small element of truth wrapped up in a whole lot of exaggeration. Sometimes it's bold-faced lie. <laughs> Sometimes people's egos are such that they'll take all sorts of compliments, even though they know they're just absolutely not true. But normally then, flattery has some kind of element of deception in it, but not in this case. Not in the case of what the the Pharisees and the Herodians said to Jesus. In this case, their flattery happened to be true. In fact, it's so true that it wasn't even flattery. There's no exaggeration in what they said about Jesus, also no falsehood. Uh, They said that Jesus was true and faithful, true and faithful teacher from God, absolutely true. Uh, They said Jesus was not swayed by anyone's opinion, absolutely true. Uh, They said truthfully that Jesus was never swayed by appearances. And that was exactly the case. We know in the Sermon on the Mount that one of the things that Jesus said Uh, was uh, a stinging criticism of all those who were hypocrites. Uh, You know, he called people hypocrites who made a big show of giving to the poor, who made a big show of their uh, public prayers, who made a big show of of how lengthy and flowery their public prayers happened to be. Jesus criticized all those who tried to live in such a way as to impress others. They also say that Jesus taught the very way of God in truth. Absolutely true. And that presents the greatest irony. The attempt to bait Jesus in their trap with flattery fails because they actually have to declare about Jesus what is true. They're forced to admit the truth which they are denying by attempting to set this trap for Christ. Now, the nature of the trap The situation that they propose to Jesus is what we would commonly call an ethical dilemma. Now, if you know anything about dilemmas, especially ethical dilemmas, they have what we call two horns, the horns of the dilemma. Uh, And and that's a kind of a figurative way of pointing out that that the horns of the dilemma, you have to choose one or the other, but either one is going to impale you. That is to say, it's a deadly choice whichever way you go. Either way you choose, you're going to get yourself into some kind of trouble by making that choice. That's their aim. They want to impale Jesus on either one of the horns of this dilemma that they propose. Now, we have to think at this point in reading the story that the, that the Pharisees and the Herodians considered themselves to be really quite shrewd. They must have thought that this strategy was nothing other than turning the tables on Jesus because that's the same way Jesus had confronted that other delegation from the Sanhedrin previously. Remember, he had given to them the dilemma. The baptism of John the Baptist, was it from God or was it from men? A strict dilemma, a clear either-or, a true dichotomy. Uh, But if they said, well, it's just from men, like I said before, the people would stone them. If they said, well, from God, then Jesus would say, why didn't you follow him? They couldn't answer. Either answer would have placed them in a situation of trouble. 
And they think that they've got the same kind of issue, the same kind of dilemma with respect to Jesus. We're going to ask Jesus a question, an either-or, and either answer is going to be his doom. Here's why. If Jesus says, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, well, many of the Jews would have been pleased, especially the zealots, that party of the Jews would have been especially pleased that this popular guy Jesus agrees with them. We shouldn't be paying taxes to Rome. It's not God's will for us to pay taxes to Rome. It's not God's will for Israel to be subservient to this anti-God pagan government. But then the Sanhedrin, then the Herodians, then the Romans would have had just cause to arrest Jesus for inflammatory, seditious statements and viewpoints as inciting the people to rebel against the current authority of Rome. And that's exactly what the secular Herodians wanted Jesus to say. No, don't pay the taxes. But on the other hand, if Jesus said yes, that it was a lawful duty to pay, it would have alienated many of the devout Jews. Uh, It would have meant that, that Jesus was saying that there was no problem paying taxes to a government that is totally and in, in, in rebellion in a blasphemous way against the God of Israel. The Pharisees would have loved for them, loved for Jesus to have said that because then they could have denounced Jesus. How can this man be the true Messiah? The true Messiah didn't come to endorse Rome. The true Messiah would come in order to alleviate this oppression. The true Messiah would come in, in order to save us from this oppression the true Messiah would come to overturn the Roman government. That would have been their perspective. They could have denounced Jesus. They could have said, look, all you Passover pilgrims, you celebrated this man as the son of David and his entry into Jerusalem on Sunday. Look, he, doesn't, he hasn't come in order to do anything about Rome. He's really come in order to tell you to be good, subservient members of the Roman Empire. Pay your taxes. So strategy was exceptional. There could not have been a better human strategy to pin Jesus down. It, It was the best issue they could have devised. It was explosive. It was controversial. It was divisive. And it would force Jesus to take a side. Who are you going to be on? Whose side are you going to be on, Jesus? Are you really going to be on the side of Israel? Or are you going to be on the side of Rome? That's what it looks like. Now, we know the outcome. We know that Jesus was not outsmarted by this strategy. Stop and think about that for a moment. The the greatest human strategy ever devised against the Son of God failed. We know it failed. We're going to read about how it failed. Do you think that you ever encounter anything that outsmarts the wisdom and love of God with respect to your life? Do you see how it follows from this very passage that we're being told 
about the great doctrine of God that the worst that human beings could ever do with respect to the Son of God and trying to think up a strategy to overthrow God's Messiah and His work in this world is going to utterly fail? Is not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the God and Father of all of us as Christians? Do you think there's anything that's going on in your life, no matter how difficult, no matter how challenging, no matter how hurtful, no matter how how absolutely perplexing to you? You may be outsmarted. Is God outsmarted? Is Christ outsmarted in any of the circumstances that, that you face in life? As Christians, we have to say, if Jesus could get out of this, and we know he does, cannot the same Lord Jesus Christ rescue me, grant me the grace, enable me somehow in some manner to deal with all the struggles that are going on in my own life? Isn't this story partly here to tell us trust Jesus in all of those most challenging circumstances of life? I think it is there. I think it does tell us that. I think it is for our benefit in that regard. But then we go on to see that not only is there never a situation in which God could ever be outmaneuvered or outsmarted, but we get to see specifically how did Jesus address this trap and How did he escape this dilemma? And then what is the profound teaching that actually comes out of the words which Christ gives? First, some background, though, on this tax that was required of the Jews under the Roman Empire. It was called a capitulation tax. We would call it a head tax. Uh, Basically, every adult Jewish male was required to pay it. It went directly into... First, it went directly to Pilate as the Roman procurator, the governor, and from there it went right into the imperial treasury. It's how, Roma, it's how the Roman government financed its presence in Israel. It's how it financed its court system. It's how it financed its army as both a protective force against outside enemies and also as the police force within Israel itself. So the tax specifically was paid in a denarius. A denarius was basically one day's wage. Just an aside, we know that most of us in the middle class pay about four months of work (laughs) to the government that operates over us. Our tax burden is significantly higher, a whole lot higher, maybe 120 times higher than what was burning with the Jews. Uh, They didn't like taxes. And uh, enough said on that. (laughs) Now, the coin, the denarius, in which this tax was paid is also going to play a significant role in what Jesus does. Uh, On one side, there was uh, the image of Caesar, and it had this inscription, Tiberius, Caesar Augustus, Son of the divine Augustus. 
So one side has the image of Caesar's head with those words. The other side, there was a figure seated on a throne wearing a crown, dressed as a high priest with the inscription, Highest Priest. Now the coin was minted by the emperor. His image is on it. It was considered his property, even though it was being used by everyone everywhere within the Roman Empire. Now, such a coin was intrinsically blasphemous in the mind of a truly devout Jew because it so violated the first two commandments to have no other God than the true God. And, of course, this coin is posturing Caesar as a divinity. And then, and then to make no images of God at all, no images that might be worshipped. Yet, here's what's significant. This party of Jews, composed of secular and religious Jews, even the most religious among them, the Pharisees, are going to have this coin in their possession and also use this coin all the time in the commerce of Israel. So, verse 15 is where then Jesus' response and escape begins. He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And so they produce the coin. That's significant, isn't it? They have denarii among them. Jesus makes them identify its ownership. He says, whose likeness and inscription is this? They have to answer Caesar's. So Jesus now has them. They have Caesar's coin. They use Jesus' coin. Excuse me. They have Caesar's coin. They use Caesar's coin. So Christ has exposed their hypocrisy. He then delivers the answer that leaves them speechless and amazed. Render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. And to this they have no answer. But we ask then, what does this mean? What does it mean to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and then to render to God the things that are God? Volumes have been written on that. But the authority for understanding what it means most basically is found in the apostles and their writings because they heard what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit enabled them to understand what Jesus said. And they put into New Testament at least the first layer of implications and applications of what Jesus said. The best way to understand, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God, is to go directly to the New Testament and see what, for instance, Paul and Peter had to say. So, Romans chapter 13, a few verses out of the first seven verses in that chapter. This is what Paul said. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist, exist, are instituted by God, dropping down to verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. 
meaning render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. Or similarly, this is what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now the point is, the New Testament apostles understood Jesus to teach that there is legitimate human government. There's legitimate human authority to which Christians are to live in submission and Christians are to render their proper support to that government, normally in the form of taxes, but always in the form of respect. At the same time, Jesus said we must render to God the things that are God's. Now, what does that mean? Well, when Jesus said, look at the coin whose image is this, and because it was Caesar, Jesus was implying this is Caesar's image, therefore this is Caesar's coin. On the other hand, we are human beings. Every one of us bears God's image. We're all created in God's image, which means we all belong to God. Every person, believer or non-believer, is God's creation, God's possession. All things in heaven and on earth belong to God. He is the creator of all things. Therefore, every human being belongs to God. And every human being is under the obligation to render unto God the things which are God's. Because of belonging to God. Everyone is under obligation to render back to God those things that belong to God. Now, Jesus is teaching... That Caesar has his realm of authority. God has sovereign authority over all things. God's authority is preeminent. The application, and particularly for us as Christians, would be we must recognize the supremacy of God over all things, even in our earthly citizenship and submission to earthly governments. Ultimately, our allegiance is owed to Jesus Christ. That doesn't work out everything in terms of uh, how we're supposed to understand what it means to properly render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But we ought to know what it means to render unto God the things that are God's. We ought to. And that is part of what it means for us to faithfully live as Christians, to keep understanding that every aspect of our lives, whatsoever we do, whether we eat or drink, all of it's done to God's glory because it all is under the supreme authority of our Savior, Jesus. But what's also very important for us is to see what Jesus did in the rest of his life that was an exact outworking of what he says on this occasion. How Jesus in the next few days will render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God. Because here it has 
here's how it comes about. How Jesus submitted himself fully to the full authority of the Roman Empire and the Jewish authority at that time. Because Jesus voluntarily placed himself in submission under the authority of the Jewish court to be tried by them even though their accusations were unfounded, unjust, and not true. Even when the verdict against him meant crucifixion, even when it meant that the Roman government itself was going to have to exercise the, their authority to put this man, Jesus, to death. In all of this, Jesus rendered unto Caesar the submission to the power that belonged to Caesar. Christ himself went under human authority as the greatest demonstration of humility and the depths of being a servant to those that he came to redeem. Ultimately, this is the center and heart of the gospel. Rendering to Caesar submission and obedience for the sake of reconciling lost human beings to God. Now, in this rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, Jesus was also rendering unto God the things that are God. Look at how Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Therefore, all the accusations and judgment against him were unjust. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus rendered to God what was God's because Jesus knew this was God's will for him. God's redemptive purpose. The mission for which the Father sent the Son into the world to save all of those that the Father had given to the Son, to be the good shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep, that he himself, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, would necessarily submit to Caesar's evil rule over his life and go to the cross under Caesar's judgment to render fully unto God what belonged to God. And Peter calls for Christians to follow Jesus' own example. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What does this mean? We can't answer every question about all of the implications of all of this. I don't think we really have to. I think the one question we have to answer is this. In living out our lives and our earthly citizenship, and in the context of all the decisions and choices that we are going to have to make, are we always going 
to give to Christ our first and highest allegiance. The gospel has saved us for this. Jesus is worthy of this. And by the grace of the Holy Spirit and the power that works within us, we pray that we would faithfully, as we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, always, ultimately, finally, joyfully, render unto God the things that are God's. Let's pray. Father, enable us by your grace, even as we come to the table this morning, to renew what we hope and pray is our deepest desire, to live in such a way that we were rendering unto you, Almighty God, through your Son, our Sovereign Lord and King Jesus, all of those things, our very lives and all that pertains to our lives, that we would be rendering all of these things unto you. And that with respect to our earthly citizenship, you would direct and guide and lead in those things that are difficult and challenging and sometimes very hurtful to endure, that we might be faithful as Christians. In Jesus' name, amen.